I'd like to invite you now to turn in your Bibles to the book of Philippians. Philippians chapter 3. This morning we are going to consider Philippians chapter 3 verses 1 through 3. And so we're starting a new chapter and also some new themes are going to be introduced in this chapter. So Philippians chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. And beloved, before we be, hear God's word, if you would, join your hearts together with me in prayer. Let's pray together, friends. Our Father and our God, we thank you for the Bible, for the inspired and infallible word of God given to the church. This Bible that has been called by some the love letter of Jesus Christ to his bride. So we thank you for these words. We thank you for the living and active nature of the Word of God. We thank you for the gospel. We pray, Father, that as the gospel goes out from the mouth of your servant this morning, we pray, Father, that our hearts would be subdued, that we would humble ourselves before the majesty of Jesus Christ, that lost sinners would be converted to the praise of your glory, and that this word would not return to you void. We pray, Father, that you would advance your kingdom through the preaching of the gospel, for we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Philippians chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Beloved, this is the word of God. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus, and put no confidence in the flesh. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our Lord remains forever. Well, as much as Paul talks about joy and rejoicing in this letter, which he does, he talks about this uh, many times throughout this letter, you might, one might get think that nothing could possibly get Paul angry, that nothing could arouse his anger. He seems to be always joyful and rejoicing, which he was. And so nothing could uh, get him to show any type of strong emotion, at least negative emotion. In fact, in verse 1, he says again, rejoice in the Lord. And so we see it again here in this section. Rejoice in the Lord. Have joy in the Lord. But if we are at all familiar with the rest of Paul's letters, not just Philippians, but the rest of his writings in the New Testament, we would know that he at times got quite emotional about certain things. And he expressed that emotion through his writings. And when I say emotional, I mean, for the most part, negative emotions. Negative emotions is what he um, revealed in some of his writings, like anger frustration, impatience, even, with what was going on in the churches. We might think of Paul writing to the Galatians, for example, saying things like this, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? And also in 2 Corinthians, he says this, For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. There he was warning the Corinthians against these false teachers, which they were apparently being tempted to believe. 
And here also in the Philippians, in this section in Philippians, look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Now in Philippians, this harsh language is somewhat jarring because it comes right after the exhortation from Paul in verse 1 to rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. Again, he repeats it again, rejoice in the Lord. Then he says, look out for these horrible people, these dogs, these mutilators of the flesh. Now before we get into this, we should understand that when we see such coarse language in Paul's writings, it's there for good reason. Paul was not one to fly into fits of anger for no good reason at all. In fact, that's the mark of a a good elder, the requirements for an elder, that he would not be violent but gentle. He's not prone to being thrown into fits of anger for no substantial reason. This was not Paul. Rather, Paul was justified in his frustration, in his indignation, in his anger at times, In both the Corinthian passage and the passage from Galatians, it appears that the members of the churches were being tempted to believe and to follow false teachers. They were actually being drawn into false teaching. And they were being drawn into the lies coming from false teachers. And so he got quite emotional. He got quite upset, quite angry even at times because they were believing these things. If they were to do this the churches, the members of the churches, then they would be running the risk of falling into a spiritual catastrophe. Paul cared for them. If they began to believe these things, they would be putting themselves in spiritual danger. And so he uses harsh language at times to get their attention. If you saw your friend, a close close friend of yours, distracted by his phone and was about to inadvertently walk in front of a speeding bus and flatten him because he was not paying attention, you would not simply casually tell him to look out. You would not withhold your emotions at that point. His life is in danger, so what would you do? You would say, stop, look up. You would call out his name. He's, he's about to die, possibly. This is, what, this is where this emotion comes from from Paul. He cares about the church. He cares about what they might be tempted to do, what they might be tempted to believe, and so he wants to get their attention. Look out. Beware of these people. Beware of this type of teaching. Now, this is something of what Paul was doing here. There's no evidence, though, that the Philippians were anywhere close to the kind of state that the Galatians were in or that the Corinthians were in. There's no evidence that they were close to believing in false teaching. But he did want this church to be aware of them, to beware of them. He says, look out. He repeats it three times. Now, this is not a casual call. Again, it is a stern warning about false teaching. And so he tells them to look out, beware, look out, be warned. It's out there. And you are prone to temptation. And so look out for it. Now, like any good preacher, Paul begins this section by saying, finally, as if he were about to conclude when he actually wasn't about to conclude. He has much more to say after this. And so he says, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Now, Paul is essentially saying here, bear with me for a moment in repeating myself. It is safe for you to hear this. Or we could say it like this. 
It is good for you to be reminded of this in order to be safe. And so bear with me for a moment as I repeat myself and remind you of these certain things here. Now, what was repeated here? Well, we're not, it's not entirely clear. It may be that he was referencing the opposition that he mentioned in chapter 1. Remember there he said, do not be frightened by your opponents. Maybe the opposition that he was talking about there were the false teachers that he talks about here. Although Paul does seem to be talking about a possible form of opposition here. He says, beware of them. It doesn't seem like they've already entered into the church. They had not arrived yet, but they were out there. Chapter 1, however, seems to be talking about a present opposition. Maybe it was coming from the Roman government or the Roman culture. He says, do not be frightened by your opponents that are presently there. And so it may have been the false teaching that uh, he's repeating himself about here, but not likely based upon what's here. Or it could be that what is repeated is the call to rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord in the midst of suffering. Rejoice in the Lord even as you look out for false teaching. Rejoice in the Lord. Whatever Paul was talking about is being repeated these same things, it's nevertheless, it's good. It's safe for us. It's good for us to hear these things. It's, it's a good thing in general, apart from what we have here, to be reminded of things over and over again because we often uh, forget. And so it's good for us to hear this overall message. Rejoice in the Lord as you watch out for false teaching and the false teachers who bring it. That's the message. Now, it might seem contradictory to think that we should arm ourselves against spiritual opposition like this with joy. That may not be the first thing that comes to your mind when you're hearing the words, look out, beware. You may not think, I need to be joyous in the Lord in order to beware. But joy in this context should not be foreign to us. And having joy, even in the midst of something like this, should not be foreign to us. Nehemiah faced all kinds of opposition in leading the work of rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem, which you can find out in the book of Nehemiah, find out about in the book of Nehemiah. He had all sorts of opposition coming against him. He was trying to reestablish unity among the church at that time. After much of the work was finished, they read from the law, and Nehemiah told his people after that, the joy of the Lord is your strength. And so on some level then, to have joy in the Lord is to arm yourself against opposition of all kinds. Or we might think of Psalm 21. This is of David. David says, O Lord, in your strength the king rejoices. And so there is strength to be had from rejoicing in the Lord. There is a measure of spiritual resources to be tapped into there if we rejoice in the Lord. There is strength to be found there, a strength that is needed. We need strength to do what Paul says to do here. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Now, the repeated command here to look out or watch out is a command to guard ourselves against false teaching. That is what is in view. Watch out for this. Heresy, deceptive leaders, teachers, they're always present. They will always be a threat to the church. Now, why do you think this church and us today would need to have this command repeated? Why would, why would Paul need to repeat this over and over again? Look out. Look out. Beware. 
Watch out. It is because we are sometimes prone to being deceived. We are prone to being deceived by false teachers. Often these men and sometimes women are incredibly talented. They're very smart. They bring a lot to the table. They write books. They speak very well. They're charismatic, whatever it may be. In fact, we just heard from that passage from Corinthians that Satan disguises himself as an angel of the light. And so there's something attractive to them. They look like angels of light to us on the outside. And so like a costume, these false teachers appear on the outside to be something they're not. They appear to be someone who can give you benefit that can, and to give teaching that can benefit you spiritually. That's the appearance they give on the outside. Paul says, do not be drawn into their deception. Now, in order to fully understand the dangerous attraction that the, the, the false teachers in Paul's day had, we need to figure out who they were. Who were these false teachers that Paul was talking about in particular? Well, he calls them dogs. He calls them evildoers and mutilators of the flesh. Now today, if we called someone a dog, or if we were talking about someone and we say they're like a dog, or they're an evildoer, we would most likely be referring to their immoral behavior, would we not? And no doubt that in a certain sense, the immorality of these people is in view. There, there were certain to be some immorality present among these evildoers. Paul does, in fact, call them evildoers. It's hard to get around the the name evildoer, and not think about immorality or wicked behavior. But in this context, these terms taken together, they refer to people who are outside the covenant community of God. They are outside the covenant. They are not accepted. They are godless. They are pagans. They have not been adopted into the family of God. They lack faith in Christ. And because of this, they are like the Gentiles of old, the Gentiles of the old covenant. They had no God. They, had, they did not have the promises of God. They did not have the law of God. And therefore, they were immoral because of those things. But the point that Paul is getting across here, I think, is that they're out, these people he's talking about are outside the covenant community. When Jesus said to the Syrophoenician woman, she was a Gentile woman in the Gospels, she said, he said to her, it is not right to give the children's bread to the dogs. Now she was looking for mercy from Jesus. She was looking for healing from Jesus for a member of her family. And Jesus, as we know from what we're told in the Gospels, we're told that he was sent primarily to the lost sheep of Israel. He was sent in his mission to retrieve the lost sheep of the house of Israel. The gospel, of course, mercy of God would go out to the Gentiles, but that would come later in its fullness after Christ died. At this point, though, in his ministry, he could say things like this. It's not right to give the children's bread to the dogs. Who are the dogs? It's those outside of the Jewish religion, the Syrophoenicians, like this woman was. He wasn't talking necessarily about her immoral behavior. He was talking about her religious status. She was a Gentile. And at that point, it was not right to give the bread to the dogs. And then, of course, many of you know how that story ended. She said, yes, but 
Dogs take crumbs. I'll take the crumbs from the table. And Jesus commended her on her faith, her strong faith. And so that whole event was really meant to convict the Jews of their unbelief. But when he called, he he basically referred to her as part of the dogs. He was talking about those outside of the Jewish community. She was a non-Jew. She was outside the covenant. And so those characteristics of her religious status alone, they should have made her immoral. She should have been immoral like the Jews were. And yet here she is with strong faith, being perfectly happy, receiving the crumbs from the table. Whatever whatever I can get, Lord. And Jesus says, how great is your faith. And so, again, to be a dog here in this context is to be someone who's outside the covenant community. Now, these false teachers here were most likely Jews. They were most likely Jews who wanted to impose the religious rites of the Jewish scriptures onto Gentiles, namely circumcision. That's why he calls them mutilators of the flesh. They were Jews who had been circumcised and were now telling Gentiles who were coming into the covenant community, you have to be circumcised. You have to be circumcised in order to truly be a part of this community. You have to be circumcised in order to be truly saved, to be accepted with God. That's the message that they were giving. You must be circumcised. You must adhere to these Jewish rites that we have, that you don't have, if you want to be part of this body. If you are not circumcised, you are not in our community. That was essentially the message that they were teaching. To put it another way, these false teachers were promoting a religious based on everything external. So in that way, they were teaching confidence in the flesh. You can earn your salvation before God. You can be accepted by God by purely external actions, namely circumcision. Now, there's an attraction here. This is why Paul is bringing this up, because of social pressure. These are Jews. The Gentiles are new to the game. They are surrounded by all these quote-unquote spiritual people who are part of the Jewish community, and they've got numbers behind them and they're telling the Gentiles that they need to be circumcised and they're saying if you're not you are outside the community nobody wants to be excluded from the community you want to be accepted right and so there's a temptation there to be drawn into this thinking there's also the perversion of truth that comes from false teachers like this circumcision was a good thing it was a good thing for Jews it was a sign and seal in the old covenant of God's grace to them. They were commanded to circumcise their children. And so it was a good thing. It was a holy thing. And it set apart the people of God for a time. It was a sign associated with the old covenant. And it was a sign given to those inside the covenant community. Abraham, justified by faith, received the sign and the seal of that faith by being circumcised. And he also had his children circumcised, his sons. But circumcision, among other things, in the Old Covenant, of course, was a preview of something greater, something deeper. For circumcision, that religious rite foreshadowed the circumcision of Christ. Christ was cut off from the land of the living when he was crucified. That was his crucifixion, or that was his circumcision, rather. 
And so circumcision as a sign, as a good thing in the Old Testament, pointed to something much, much better. The circumcision of Christ on the cross. And he did that, so he went through that circumcision so that Gentiles might be made part of God's covenant community. And so the only obligation in the New Testament then, because Christ has died and was raised, the only obligation to be part of the community of God's covenant people is faith in Christ. That's it. That's the requirement. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you are accepted with God. You are part of the covenant community. You are part of his family. Faith in Jesus Christ. That is what is required. There is a new event, a new movement in history. It's the the crucifixion, the resurrection of Jesus Christ in this present age. And so with the work of Christ on the cross as he fulfilled the law, what did he do? He did away with those aspects of Jewish law, circumcision, animal sacrifices. He's fulfilled them. He's done away with them. They're no longer needed because Christ has died and was raised. Now, what do we have? New signs. Baptism, a bloodless sign that comes not only to the boys in a family, but to the girls as well. And not just to Jews, the Gentiles. Whoever has faith in Christ and their children The Lord's Supper is a new sign given to to the covenant community of God's people. And therefore, for anyone to try and impose this external rite, this merely external act, circumcision, as the only way to God and his people, Paul says elsewhere that that nullifies the grace of God revealed in Christ. It eliminates it. It evaporates it. It destroys it. We'll look at this more. To demand in any fashion that people must go through an external right purely in addition to or even apart from faith in Christ is to nullify the work of Christ. And it is false teaching. And the last time I checked, that is blasphemy. I think you can see now why Paul is worked up at times about these things. It is a direct assault on Jesus Christ and what he's done. It's not to be toyed with. It's not to be played with. Look out. Watch out. Any religious system that imposes a salvation by works of the law nullifies Christ. Watch out for it. I hope, again, I think we can see now why Paul gets into this mode at times. We have Christians believing things like this. Christians believing that they, they have to be circumcised, otherwise they're not in the community. Paul calls these people mutilators of, the fl- mutilators of the flesh. In demanding circumcision, they were acting more like pagans. Pagans practiced all types of self-harm, self-mutilation in their godless religious practices. And so Paul says, you're more like them. You're more like pagans harming themselves before their dead idols. To put it bluntly, Paul was saying that these so-called Judaizers, and that was the name that they were given, these so-called Jews who boasted in their Jewishness, boasted in their circumcision as signs of being included among God's people. 
in their very boasting of these things, they showed that they were actually outside the covenant. By their boasting in their Jewishness, by their boasting in their circumcision, by their trying to impose external rights on the church, they showed that they were the ones outside. They were the ones who were not adopted. They were not part of God's people. They were not true sons of Abraham. Now who is? They were the dogs. You see that there. Well, who is? Who is part of the covenant community? If they're the dogs, who is? Well, it's all those who trust in Christ alone for salvation. What a beautiful message that is. Simple. Anyone can understand it. Children can understand this. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. You will be accepted by God. As Paul says here, we glory in Jesus Christ. That's who's in. That's who's part of the covenant community. We do not put confidence in merely external things. We do not trust in our tradition. We do not trust in our good works. We do not trust in our family history. We do not trust in our social status. We do not trust in our politics. All of that, all of it, is confidence in the flesh. That is not what we trust in. We trust in a person, the Lord Jesus Christ. We trust in Christ crucified. We put our faith in him and in the sufficiency of his blood and in nothing else. That is what false teachers do. They spurn the work of Christ. They spurn the sufficiency of the blood of the God-man spilled on the cross. In all its forms. And so with this distinction in mind about what Paul is talking about, the dogs, the mutilators of the flesh, they're the ones outside the community because they bring this false teaching into the church. Faith in Christ, trusting in his work, this is what Christians do. Those who believe in Christ to seek to serve him, to obey him, whether Jew or Gentile, Christians can say with Paul here, we are the circumcision. We are the people of God. Jews and Gentiles. Isn't that amazing? Now, we may not feel the force of, to say something like this 2,000 years from this letter, but I guarantee you that to say something like this to people who are surrounded by a Jewish community so close to Christ's crucifixion, so close to the way they practice things for thousands of years, to say that we are the circumcision and they are not, that would have been a very powerful thing indeed. But that is who we are. We are the ones set apart by God. We are God's children. We are Abraham's seed. We are the holy ones. We are. Not these false teachers. Not those who would prescribe works of the law or external works in order to be saved. That runs right up against what we believe and actually threatens it. We are the circumcision. We are God's covenant people, not because of anything we have done, but because, and not because of anything in us, but only because of what Christ has done and because of who he is. And so faith in Christ, the new covenant community, it excludes any promotion of religious externalism, confidence in the flesh. It 
denies it completely. Do this and you are in. Do this and you will be saved. Don't do this and you are out. Don't do this and you won't be accepted with God. That's externalism. And that is abruptly and immediately denied by the true Christian message, which is believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. We trust in what another has done, not what we do. We glory in Christ Jesus. Now, finally, I'm going to say it. (laughs) Finally, I do hope I'm actually getting to the end. Uh, One might say, are we then called to do anything? Doesn't this type of religion promote passivity? We glory in Christ Jesus. He's done it all. Do we have to even do anything? Well, no, Paul shows us what our lives are characterized by. We worship by the Spirit of God. Circumcision was an act of worship in the Old Covenant. It was one of the ways that God's people honored him, that glorified him. But that circumcision was always to be accompanied by an inward circumcision of the heart. It was to be accompanied by living, active faith in God's promises and in the Messiah to come. It didn't didn't do anything, necessarily. It was faith in the Messiah to come that was what set God's true people apart. The true members of God's community were those who trusted not in their circumcision, but in the word of God and his promised Messiah. And so by faith, the sacrifices, the priesthood, circumcision, all the ways in which God's remnant of true believers glorified God, magnified his mercy... That is what was taking place. They were worshiping God by the Spirit of God. That's how he was glorified. And that is what these false teachers were using in their argument. Be circumcised. Follow Jewish laws. That is true worship. And on some level, it was true. That statement is true for, it was true for a time. They were worshiping God, the true followers of God. They were worshiping God through circumcision. But those times are past because of what Christ has done. Now, friends, we are justified by faith in Christ alone. And this faith is given to us by the Spirit of God. So we have the Spirit. False teachers and those who follow them do not. We worship in our assemblies. We worship God, as Jesus said in another place, in spirit and in truth. And therefore, by abiding by the commands of Scripture and how we worship each Lord's Day, we are worshiping by the Spirit. We worship God by the Spirit when we follow His commands that are given to us in the Spirit-inspired Word on how to worship. This is what we do in our assemblies each week, and this is the reason why we have what we have in our, our worship service. These things, these elements aren't random. The Lord's Supper, for example, is a command from God. It's a way in which we worship by the Spirit of God in our gathered assemblies. And so this is, we would call this the regulative principle of worship. We decide, we worship God in our gathered assemblies by how God commands us to worship him in his word. But there's more to this, friends. We worship by the spirit of God now in our, in our assemblies, in our gatherings on the Lord's day. But there's six other days of the week that we have to live, right? This is just one day. When we are given faith by the Spirit, this Spirit makes us into a new creation. We are a new creation in Christ. And thus, in the power of the Spirit, our whole lives are lived to the glory of God. 
And therefore, our whole lives, in a sense, are worshipful. We worship, yes, on the Lord's Day, for an hour in gathered worship, unlike anyone else, because we have the Spirit. We follow His Word and worship. But we worship God by the Spirit every other day of our life as we offer our bodies up to Him in worship as living sacrifices. And so it's not just what takes place here. It's what takes place within God's covenant community throughout the rest of the week. And that's what makes us God's people. That's what, that's what characterizes us. And so back to the question, well, do we do anything? Are we called to do anything if Christ has done it all? Of course we do. We do it in the power of the Spirit. We're new, we're new creatures. We want to do that. But we do it knowing it doesn't save us. We don't trust in those things because we fail. Again, we're going to look at this some more in the coming weeks. But this is what it means to worship by the Spirit of God. That we trust in Christ alone for salvation. Therefore, because of what He has done, because of what God is doing in us presently and will do by the Spirit, we are the circumcision. We are the ones who worship God by the Spirit of God. Those who would bring some other kind of teaching besides the simple gospel message, they are the ones outside. They're the ones worshiping dead idols. The lives, the heretics, are characterized then by doing evil. Ours are characterized by worshiping God, by the Spirit of God, that Jesus Christ might be glorified. Now, knowing all of this about ourselves, friends, I think it gives us good and firm reason to rejoice in the Lord always, which is what Paul began this section with. To Christ be all praise and glory now and forever. Let's pray together, friends.